I want you to imagine for just a moment, if you could kind of roll back maybe in your brain, all that you know about resurrection, all you know about the story of Jesus, and just kind of put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. The disciples, and and not just the disciples, but everybody who is encountering Jesus in this story, has lived their entire life under the oppressive Roman rule. There is no freedom. There is no money. There's often no food. There is death on every corner. There's a very famous like a road that would lead up toward Jerusalem where they would have crosses just littered with with people that you would know crucified as you walked by, uh, naked, bleeding, screaming, dying. This is the reality of the average, right, the average Jew at the time of Jesus. So you can imagine what it was like for the disciples to be walking with Jesus. Because not only do they see the oppression and the violence and the poverty and the hunger and the need, but they have all the preachers, guys like me, standing on street corners, crying out and saying, remember the prophets, Remember the prophets, because the prophets say things like this. It shall come to pass. There is going to be a time in the latter days when the mountain of the house of the Lord, this is a reference to Jerusalem. If you're new to church, that's okay. We're glad you're here. Um, But this is a reference to Jerusalem itself, the capital city, the city where the temple was, and God would alight and dwell there. This, This mountain of the Lord is going to be established as the highest mountain. So, in other words, no longer will it be under the heel of the oppressive Roman boot, but it will be the pinnacle of the world. And the nations, instead of oppressing it, instead of coming in and stealing from it, instead of killing and raping and destroying, the nations are going to continue to stream into Jerusalem, only now they're going to say to one another, let's go to Jerusalem for what? So that we can learn the ways of God. So he can teach us his ways and we can walk in them. And so Zechariah, um, in his famous prophecy, says the Lord will be king over all the earth. And you think, if you can put yourself in the disciples' boots for a second, you think Jesus is the guy that's going to make this happen. You think Jesus is the one who is going to raise up an army and, and he is going to kick the Romans out and he is going, he's going to establish all of this is going to come to pass and you are with this guy. And you're traveling with him now to where? To Jerusalem, to the place where all of this is going to happen. Can you imagine the excitement? You would think you are at the apex of human history. And then, as you are going up the road to Jerusalem, Jesus stops. And he pulls you all aside and he says, just a a second here. I want to say something to you. See, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, which is a kingly way, it's a way of saying I'm the king, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, so the religious ruling elite of Jerusalem. And they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles, so the Romans that we're just talking about, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Talk about throwing cold water on it all, right? I mean, that, imagine being the disciples and the shock you would feel because the whole point of the Messiah coming, the whole point of the king stepping in and taking over is so that he will be the one in their minds who will mock, who will spit, who will flog, and who will kill the Gentiles, casting out the ruling religious elite who have, who have uh, been complicit in the oppression of the people. Jesus, you're supposed to be doing this, not them doing it to you. What's happening here? You can imagine 
how shocking this would be. And then Jesus concludes this with this line, and after three days, he will rise. Talk about moving from shock to awe, right? You, you've just overthrown everything that I thought you were going to do, and now you've introduced something that I, 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 can't, I, I don't even know about. Like, I'm, I'm totally puzzled by this. What are you talking about, Jesus? And what's so funny about it is Jesus does this three times throughout the Gospels. As he's with the disciples, he, it's almost like he's afraid they might not get it. I don't know if you guys feel that way sometimes about your experience with God, but God is sometimes afraid we don't get things that seem relatively obvious. And so he's walking with the disciples. He says, oh, hey, guys, wait, I just, just want you to know this isn't going to turn out like you think it's going to turn out. And a little bit longer, they've seen some miracles. They've seen some power come from Jesus. Jesus wait, now, just a second. Don't, you know, this isn't going to turn out the way you think. I'm not raising an army. I'm not going to, I, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise, be raised three days later. And then as you're up, you're heading to Jerusalem. We, we, they've got all this, this vision of glory and war and glorious battle in their minds. And Jesus stops them and says, just hold on a second. I feel like you're not understanding what I'm saying to you. I'm going to die, but that won't be the end of it. What's interesting is that they were still surprised, right? They were still shocked. It should be somewhat puzzling to us, maybe even ourselves, to see this line. Because this is the, this is the culmination of all. This is the moment. This is the thing. And often, though, when we talk about the mission of Jesus, what is, what is Jesus all about? What is this, what is this coming to? What is, the, what is the purpose of all of this? We often stop and stay at the cross. We don't move on to the resurrection. The resurrection, oftentimes, as we communicate to others who Jesus was and what he was about, we talk about the cross a lot, but how often do we focus and, and, and talk, talk about the, the empty tomb? You know, Jesus was not the only Messiah. Did you know that? He was not the only person who walked around Israel saying, I'm the Messiah, you should follow me. In fact, i got a whole list of names. These are just the ones we've got some records of. I'm not going to try to pronounce all these names. The last one might be the most famous, Simon Bar Kokhba. But all of these guys at one point had gathered people around them and had said things like, We're, I'm the Messiah. And most of them had done exactly what the apostles expected Jesus to do. They raised up an army around them and they, they tried to march forward on, uh, on Jerusalem or on a Roman, um, a Roman garrison or something like that. And, and it always turned out the same way. They were crucified. They died. Right? And we don't know their names. I, in fact, I, I doubt any of you have ever heard of these people uh, before. I surmise that you were, were maybe even surprised to know that there were people, other people who claimed to be, um, claimed to be Christ, claimed to be Messiahs. What Jesus does then is completely unexpected, though the prophets foretold it. Jesus came, and rather than using the revolutionary violence that they expected, instead he used revolutionary servanthood, even to the point of death, and that death being the death of the cross. And so what explains this? What explains that these names are forgotten to history, and yet 2,000 later, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Jesus. What explains it? Nothing I submit to you except for the fact that Jesus is alive. And that he appeared to the women and to Peter and to the apostles and to 500 others, if not more, teaching them over 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension, the empty tomb, 
Though they should have anticipated it, we have this famous passage in Isaiah 3. I read it last week. talks about how Jesus was crushed um, for our iniquities and, and he bore the, the punishment that we all deserved. In fact, Isaiah 53 verses 8 and 9 says that he was cut off from the land of the living. That is, he died. And then in verse 10, it says that he shall prolong his days and the Lord shall prosper his hand. Well, what a bizarre thing to say. Because generally, dead people are not um, prolonged in life. They, that's the opposite. And they're, uh, they're, prosper, they're not very prosperous as they're lying in the grave, right? And so they should have seen this. We read this in Psalm 16 uh, as well, that uh, the Lord would not abandon his soul to Sheol, that is the grave, or let the Holy One see corruption. And this is what we see in Jesus. Jesus, the Passover lamb, did linger in the grave for three days, and then up from the grave, as we used to sing, up from the grave, he arose. He is alive. The women came to the tomb, and this is no small fact, and this is no small thing. When you read your scriptures and you read that the, the women are the first, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all attest to the same thing. The women are the first to the tomb. They are the primary witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And this is interesting because in terms of, of what um, the ancient person thought in those days is that women were not very trustworthy as witnesses. Like if a woman said something, you would wait for the man to speak up because they didn't trust women generally to give these testimonies which to me is totally backwards because laura interrupts me all the time to correct me like she remembers everything no honey it wasn't tuesday it was thursday it started with a t it doesn't matter right this is um so anyway this is god's provision making sure things get remembered rightly um but it's also interesting for the fact of the matter is if you are making up a story you don't start it with women in the ancient world that doesn't make any sense. If you're concocting a story that you want people to find believable, you use their way of thinking about things, their context, their worldview, and you would have had Peter show up first. You would have had John show up first. You would have had somebody else show up first. But the women are the first to the tomb looking to anoint his body. And they find the guards out. They find the, sto the stone rolled away. They find an empty tomb save for the glory of the angels who say to him, say to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while you were still in Galilee. This is a funny line, right? This is, you, can, you, would, you should chuckle a little bit because it's, Galilee was to the north, if you remember. Jerusalem was to the south. So before y'all even kind of came south, before you even came to Jerusalem, remember how he told you this is exactly what was going to happen. He told you while you were still in Galilee that the Son of Man would be delivered in the hands of sinful, sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. I love this because they didn't expect Jesus to die. They were surprised by it, even though he told them. You would have thought that one of them at some point would have said, well, I know we weren't expecting him to die, but remember how he also said after that he would rise again, and yet they weren't expecting, they weren't expecting that either. And yet this is precisely this is precisely what Jesus did. This uh, is, is the most climactic and pivotal moment in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus. We even count time by it, right? We now use CE and BCE, but it's the same time frame, right? We're, we're just trying to write Jesus out of the, that history. This is the moment. Now, I know that some people here are probably wrestling with their faith um, and, and I understand that. Uh, resurrection is, is a really 
it's a tough thing to believe. Because you've all, everybody here has been to a funeral, right? How many of you have been to, resur- to a resurrection? Good, that would have been a story to tell. I would have like, stand up right now. I want to hear about this. We, we see death, but we don't see resurrection. And so let, like, let's be real this morning. It is a step of faith. I think it is a logical and a reasonable conclusion, but it is still a step of faith. And we, we need to be real about that. Um, and the, the power here is that um, the power here is that if you think about it for a moment, across the world this morning, in Egypt, where last Sunday uh, ISIS bombed two churches and killed 50 Christians, you know what Christians are doing this morning in Egypt? They are gathering together to worship Jesus Christ. Here in the West, where it's relatively safe, we don't have to worry about anything like that. We're here to worship Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. In liberal churches, they're worshiping Jesus Christ, the risen risen Savior. In conservative churches, they're worshiping Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. Think about how crazy it is in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. In every continent, say possibly, you know, the two polar ice caps, they are celebrating Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Think about that for a moment. We are celebrating a Jewish carpenter from no place, like the armpit of the world, he, a poor preacher who wandered around for a few years declaring the good news of the kingdom of God is crucified. We today are saying across the world, he is risen. Think about that. For 2,000 years, there is something, even if you're wrestling with it, there is something to this claim. I implore you to take it seriously and to think about it. I, uh, I went through a period of, of, of doubt, really deep doubt, to the point in which I thought I, was, I thought I didn't believe in God anymore. In fact, I told my closest friend, I said to him, Danny, you all know Danny, even though you've never, I need to bring Danny so you can meet him because he just gets so much talk. I, I, I told Laura actually this week, you know on Facebook when you're like messaging people, it kind of has like the, the people you message more often show up. This is the first time that Laura showed up before Danny. I was like, babe, you've made it. Um, I, I told him, I said, man, I, I said, I'm really, I'm really wrestling with my faith. I said, I don't think I believe in God anymore. You know what he said to me? He said, Okay. Which is generally not the attitude you should take. If somebody says, I think I've lost my faith, maybe you should ask some questions. Just, you know. And I, we talked about it um, the last time we were together. I was talking to him about it. I thought, that's the weirdest thing that anyone has ever, has ever said to Like, this is the weirdest situation. It just went on. It was like, it's no big deal. And he said, I have never met somebody as infected by Jesus as you. You are not getting away. And this is what I have seen it doesn't matter whether or not you have wrestled with your faith. Even those who have left the faith have been changed by their encounter with Jesus. Jesus touches you and everything is different. The only answer to how that's possible, the only answer to how that's possible, the only answer to how I am here today is that Jesus is alive and he changes everything. Changes everything. I want to give you three things that he changes, that the resurrection changes. And um, feel free to scribble them down and to think about them, maybe talk about them as you go on your way home. The first is this, that Satan is defeated. I figured I'd get the most controversial one out of the way. Um, 
Because I know that this is probably not something uh, many people believe, but the Bible is something I actually take really seriously. And I know that, that there are you know, places that it feels odd in our modern world to believe in, but I, I believe this stuff. It's true. I've seen it at work in my life and in the work of those around me. And there is a dark and unseen force that is at work in things. And the scriptures declare this. In fact, it's very interesting. um, Within the text that we have of Jesus' own betrayal, we have two moments, both in John and in Luke. And it is unusual for for the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, who's kind of his own weird, cool thing, uh, to to, to really kind of use the same same words. But they both do here. And that is that um, Jesus, as he is uh, in the... um, at the Last Supper, uh, Judas um, asks, they're all asking the question, are we the betrayer? And, and, and he dips his bread in with Jesus. And that is the moment that Satan enters into, Jesus, or into, um, into Judas. And Ju- Jesus, who recognizes this, says, what you're going to do, go, go do it. Go be done with it. It is that Satan is utilizing the power of the world. He's utilizing betrayal. He's utilizing the fear of these religious rulers. He is utilizing the apathy and brutality of the Roman government to accomplish his end, which is to have Jesus killed. Because he thinks that this is a solution to the problem. He thinks that he can stop Jesus with this, with this crucifixion. You know, it's interesting because if you remember with me, if you rewind all the way back to at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, Jesus, after his baptism, goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And one of the temptations is that Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor and he says, I can give you this. You want to be king? You want to be Messiah? You want to free your people? I can give it to you. And I can give it to you without a cross. I can give it to you without a grave. I can give it to you without having to wander around these dusty roads with all these dusty people. I can make you a king today. Just bow down and worship And Jesus says, I choose the cross. I choose the dusty people. I choose the grave. And then we notice if you go all the way to the end of the book, to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 18, that famous passage where Jesus is about to ascend, um, and he delivers to his disciples a final word. We call it the Great Commission. Go forth in the world, baptizing and teaching. Before he does that, he says this to them. He says, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Post-death, post-resurrection, the risen Lord has now triumphed over every single power. Every single authority must bend its knee to Jesus. And this, of course, lays before us a very important hope. Colossians chapter 1 verse um, 20, I'm sorry, verse 13 and 14 puts it this way, that Jesus has now delivered us, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, from the kingdoms of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have beautiful words, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This has tremendous application to the life of the average Christian. You belong to the kingdom of the risen Savior. You belong to the Lord of light. He is crying out to you, recognize who you are and where you are. Because even though things are very dark all around you, you are his. And your life should shine like that of the sun like the stars in the sky, because you have been set free from the kingdom of darkness. 
Peter puts it this way, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though do you, you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And so this leads us to the next thing that is defeated, and that is sin. Remember that old passage, maybe you memorized this. We'll see, I'll, I'll give you half of it and see if you can finish it. For the wages of sin is death. Oh, very good, oh, very good. I see that VBS has done well here. The wages of sin is death. Think about that statement for a second, because it's very strange. This week, Emery has been particularly naughty. Uh, she's not, she loves the baby, but she hates not having 100% of the attention. So we're in this, and so she is using negative behavior to gather attention. And at one point, I had sort of had it because I, Esri doesn't like me, and she just when I she just when I have her, she just cries like she's I don't know uh, what it is. And there was a few times this week where where she's screaming and Emery's being insane, and I'm just like I'm I don't know what to do with you all. <laughs> and I said to Emery, I'm like I'm telling you, listen, I'm going to take I'm going to take away TV tomorrow if you don't stop doing what you're doing. And she's continuing to do it. And I, was, and I said to her. You are asking for this punishment. And she stopped and she looked at me like cold, dead, like sarcasm, like, like just channeling full Jordan power. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. So you're asking for it. No, I'm not. And it was so funny how deadpan she said it. Like I couldn't even punish her. Like it was just hilarious. I don't know if you ever had a kid. That, we say that all the time. You're asking for it. Any parents ever say you're asking for it? And of course, the honest truth is no, the child's not asking for it. But I don't want to stop the bad things I'm doing either, right? But the bad things that I'm doing are going to create the situation where punishment is necessary. And that's what Paul is getting at. We would say to ourselves, well, and we might say this on Judgment Day. Somebody might stand before God and say, I didn't ask for this. And God said, yet you continued to reject my grace. You continued to reject my truth. You continued to live as a person who belongs to the kingdom of darkness rather than belonging to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved son. And so what we have here is, of course, that problem. But Jesus, Jesus fixes this problem. He engages this problem. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to ransom us. You know what ransom is? You've been kidnapped. Sometimes maybe you even feel like that. We talked about addictions over the, a couple weeks ago. Um, and sometimes if you've ever struggled with addiction, it feels like you've been ca- captured. Like you're, you're held hostage by sin. And you can't get free of that. What's this word mean? This word means that through Jesus, you have been ransomed. You are not a captive any longer. You're free. We need to consider this for a moment because I know that sin is about as popular a topic to talk about as Satan is. But if there's no sin, why did Jesus come? If we don't need to be rescued, why send a rescuer? That's the, the sort of the scandalous thing that Christians believe in. And, and I sort of embrace the oddity of our beliefs in a modern world that has despiritualized everything. And all we see is material right here. And all you're taught is that you're material. And the scriptures say, and I declare to you, that you are not just material. 
That you are made by God for a purpose, for life. You are made for eternity. And sin and Satan are colluding together to hold you captive. And Jesus died and rose from the grave so that captivity would be loosed and you would be free to worship God both today and forever. That's good news. So good you throw things. I love uh, this text here in 2 Corinthians. If we, uh, the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised. And then in verse 17, he says, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Why would that be true? When we stop at the cross and we don't continue on to the resurrection, we miss something important. We miss what Paul says right here. Why is that true? It's true because death is the wage, remember? And if Jesus Christ just dies and he stays in the grave and that's the end of it and he doesn't come up, the wage is still what he's got. But rather, Jesus broke through that power. And he is alive forevermore. And even sin could not hold him. This uh, is the last one here. And I, I, love, I love this text. I want to bring it forward here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that he must reign and put all the enemies under his feet. And of course, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, death is still alive. It is still an enemy that, we, that has not been destroyed. It has not been completely loosed. We will still, in fact, you know, over the past six weeks, we've been talking about um, things that people have wrestled with. And if you haven't been able to come uh, to the Wednesday night, I want to encourage you to go onto our website, odcc.org. Um, and go on there and, and listen to uh, the, the, the uh, people we brought in from um, Cornerstone Christian Counseling, licensed professional counselors, who shared with us some insight on, on marriage issues and, and all of that, um, addiction, uh, uh, depression. But not everyone in this room is going to deal with addiction and depression. Not everyone in this room is going to get married, and not everyone in this room is going to have children, but every one of you, barring Jesus' return, is going to die. And so an important question that we ought to think about is how do you die well? How do you die well? Because I really want to die well. And one of the words that we have today is that death, because it has no longer has dominion over us, there is a fear that is no longer a part of us. That makes sense. If you think about the way in which death um, is ubiquitous, every, it is the sort of the great leveler. Everybody has to face this, as the Hebrews puts it. There, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. This is the most, I think, intuitive problem. And again, arguing with you, um, uh, arguing to you, for you, and, and uh, maybe even through you if you take it out of here. To me, this is a, a core problem. If we came from nothing, and if we are going to nothing, if there's nothing, you're just material, that's all it is, then why is death so scary? Because there is nothing more natural than death, right? I mean, everything dies. Trees, grass, plants, animals, you, me, everything dies. Why is that not something we just sort of evolutionarily got used to? I would argue it's because death is the most unnatural thing. It is the thing that every single one of us hungers to not be true. We want it to not be true, so we fight it. We fight it with, with drugs. We fight it with machines. We fight it with, with anti-aging creams. We fight it with exercise. We fight it with every inch of our being. We fight against death. And Jesus says, you don't need to worry about it anymore. He says, the wages of sin is death, but 
How's it go on? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord because he is the first fruit of the dead, the Bible says. He is the first one to come forward. He is the first to live forever. And the fact that he rose from the grave is the, the, the hope that we have that we too will rise. That when Jesus comes again, we will rise with him. Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews 9, 26 through 28. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of all of the ages to put away by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He will come again, not to deal with sin in the way that he did when he first was here, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So... This morning, the question is, are you eagerly awaiting him? Is that your hunger? Is that your heart? Do you believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Because if you have, everything is different. You, all of creation, has become New, And Gwen shared an amazing story that I want to share with you uh, uh, concerning this. Gwen spoke with uh, on, on Wednesday. Please, again, check the website out and listen to Gwen as she talks about uh, death. Um, she, as a hospice nurse, has done some things, various roles um, in nursing. And there's a story that she told me about uh, a man who um, had gone through, uh, was very ill, and was going to die. They could go through all kinds of, uh, you know, extreme measures to try to, to try to bring him, keep him alive for a little bit longer. But he was a believer. He's a Christian. And so he said, no, just hook me up downstairs and let the people come in and say goodbye to me. I'm ready to go. He uh, wrote this letter. This is the last thing that he wrote. Uh, Gwen said that she was puzzled by it because people would come in and, and they would be, uh, you know, come out and they'd be full of eyes full of tears. And this is the last letter that he wrote. You could see um, that it's misspelled a little bit here and there. Um, but it says this. I can't uh, believe that God is actually coming to take me. This is easy. I don't hurt and there is no fear. Just, I'm just so blessed to have God's Holy Spirit here to comfort me. And I pray that Everyone can have this relationship with Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Look how Jesus suffered and how easy it is for us. And this last beautiful line, please share this message. Because for a Christian, everything is different. Where there was fear, there is now courage. Where there was worry, there is now peace. Where there is pain, there is now hope. Where everything seemed lost, there is now comfort. Because of Jesus. Because he died. Because he rose. Because he has given to us his Holy Spirit. I love this text. I read it earlier, I want to read it again. But it was not counted for him alone, but for us also. Counted to all those who believe in him. Who raised Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses 
and raised for our justification. If you are not a Christian here today, I plead with you, be reconciled to God for he cares for you. Jesus did all that he could to draw you. If you are a Christian who has gone wayward, sideways, and you have not followed after Jesus, I plead with you to recognize who Jesus is and how far he has gone to see yourself for who you are, that you belong to the kingdom of Christ. You are called to more than this. You are meant for glory. And if you are a believer who is right with God, then I want to hear your voice sing. Because Christ is risen. Let's stand as we sing.